Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is transforming the supply chain using AI with my friend, Max Versace. How's it going there, Max? Very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this topic. We constantly talk here about AI, 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 as if it's this magic dust. So I'm always <laughs> interested in talking to people like yourself who really understand it and who can explain some of why AI is changing the world and in this case, transforming the supply chain. So Max, please introduce yourself and your company. Absolutely. I'm Max Versace, uh, originally from Italy, uh, came to Boston about 20 years ago, and I've been in AI for even more than that, let's say 25 years in artificial intelligence. So it's not a new technology to me. It's always been a, a passion and I always knew and wanted to change the world. But the world has adapted and has agreed finally. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so in, in 2006, we started the company with a, a Anatolian header, so a Russian and American. Out of our PhD studies at Boston University, we did some patent around using graphic processing units, which are today, they're called the video cards that populate our computers and phones. And so our idea was to use it for artificial intelligence. And in 2013, we took the leap and left Boston University when we became professor and started a company to commercialize this technology as the world, as I mentioned, aligned finally with our dreams. So you were both, you and your partner were both PhDs or you were professors at Boston University? Yeah, so all three of us, myself, Heather, originally born in Iowa and Anatoly born in St. Petersburg. We found each other in Boston converging on this uh, department of cognitive and neural system, which sounds really nerdy, which is essentially where a bunch of nerds get together to mathematically deconstruct the brain and rebuild it, right? And so we were doing this for science until we, are, we realized that this can, can have transformational potential for the society at large. Yes, I think this would happen. This is the power of... Uh power of these kind of tech centers, Boston always being one of them, when you bring in the best and the brightest from Italy, Russia, and in this case, Iowa also, it works. I'm glad you're here. So where'd you grow up in Italy? So I'm originally from a small city, a harbor at the top, most top part of the Mediterranean called Trieste, which is say a hundred miles away from Venice. And so I grew up there originally from the south. My family was from the south. They moved up north and then I decided to also move myself out of Italy and come to Boston to study, you know, with the brightest mind. So did you study, did you go to college at all in Italy? For your I, did, I did actually. Started my first PhD there. Oh, your first PhD. I'm still working on my first PhD. <laughs> <laughs> well, I ended up getting two of them, right? Because the first one in Italy, they had no funds going with it. It just happened that that particular batch it was unfunded. So I finished it while doing my second PhD in at Boston University because I like to finish what I start. So I ended up with two. And I always joke that the first one, I didn't get it. I, <laughs> you, know, you, you know, it's funny. when I, I went to night school and I always worked in automotive engineering. And so I got my undergrad. I was like 30 when I got my undergrad because I went to night school. So you're always going to school at night. But I had a good job. I was working as an engineer at that point. And then I got my master's at University of Michigan, and I was like 37, 38. And now I'm like, why did I bother? Like, I work for me. 
<laughs> but anyway. Education is overrated. You can become a PhD in AI even in high school if you read the right books. Right, right. So you guys started this company, Neurala. What, what did you see in the market that made you think, hey, there's a lot of applications? What were the first ones? What were you thinking originally, and did you change course, or are you still kind of seeing that same opportunity? We changed the apparently course, but let me give you the three arc, which is pretty interesting. Right? So we started as a professor of AI designing artificial brain for NASA, DARPA, and the various other agencies. And so the idea... Uh, you know, for instance, NASA is, is fairly simple to understand, right? So NASA sends a rocket with one robot to Mars and then controls these robots step by step. They wanted to explore in the future, how can we send swarms of robots that as opposed to be controlled step by step from Earth, they can reason and navigate and explore with their own brains like we do, right? And so we were experts in designing emulation of brains, like simple brains, like rat's brain. And NASA say, well, I want those in a robot, right? Because a a rat or a mouse, they're extremely efficient in navigating. And so by doing that, we designed this very powerful technology that can be running even on a small device that you can send on on Mars that doesn't have a ton of compute power, but it's completely autonomous and can learn very quickly how to navigate an environment. And so that's what you saw first. Oh, that's what we saw first. That's what we knew how to do in academia, right? And then we came to the world like little uh, bambies and look at the world outside. We, we, <laughs> well, we realized that there are not that many robots, uh, even today, 10 years after we launched the company. And so we, we slowly found a market fit where our technology could actually serve a more terrestrial purpose, if you will. Right. So I'm a newbie still when it comes to AI, but I did read a book not so long ago, or listened to a book, and it was was called The AI Superpowers. And it was talking about 10 companies that are the big AI players, Microsoft being one, Google. I think half were in the U.S. and half were in China. And I seem to remember the author, he's the founder of SinoVision, the VC, and so he's from Taiwan, studied here, lived here for a long time, and now he's back in mainland China. And I seem to remember him saying that there's two ways that you can go about using AI. One is what you just described as kind of trying to recreate the human brain or emulate, I guess. And then he talked about another way, which is saying, I don't care to replicate the human brain. It's got, we don't need to do that. So what's that other way? I know I understand I'm emulating the brain. Is the other way is saying the, maybe the human brain isn't the way to emulate? Is there another way to go about it? Yeah, they're both right approaches, right? So think of the airplane or uh, how my old connational tried to, you know, come up with helicopters and flying machine. I'm talking about Leonardo da Vinci, right? So you, do, you don't necessarily need to emulate flapping wings to be able to fly. And in reality, an airplane is, is not exactly a bird. On the other hand, ignorance about how the brain works is not an excuse to not do it, right? So especially when we used to work with DARPA, our goal was to emulate the power of a brain in uh, the equivalent of uh, a dishwasher in terms of power consumption and the equivalent size of a shoebox. And we tried and we couldn't do it, right? So that's DARPA for you. Usually they said... And by the way, what is DARPA? DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, right? So they, DARPA is the agency that funds small things like internet, the GPS, uh, <laughs> right. and, and the like, right? So if you watch the show Lost, you'll see they talk about DARPA. And I always thought that was where DARPA became famous because they're on Lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't seen Lost, but... Uh, I, they, oh, they, and they gave you a PhD and you haven't seen Lost? Come uh, on. <laughs> I, I, I lost Lost, but... Uh, DARPA sets the goal which are reasonable, ambitious, and long-term. 
And even if they don't succeed, you build an ecosystem of thinkers and companies that get you to the almost to that step. You shoot for the moon, and if you miss, you hit the stars, right? I mean, yeah, in a sense, what we looked for back then, today you have it in your cell phone, right? So there is a neuromorphic processor today in your cell phone that pretty much emulate the concept that we pioneered back then. So give and take uh, 10, 15 years, the, those things come to fruition. But the reason I mentioned is that we are so far from being able to emulate even a teaspoon of brain that looking beyond what the brain can do, sure, it's an option, but it doesn't excuse you to be ignorant. Right, right. Yeah, I get the sense from the book that I listened to that there was two approaches that they were using and probably there's probably many more that we haven't even considered yet. But what was interesting to me is that when they were talking about AI and they said you could give you could show AI a pictures of thousands of cats, right? So it starts to recognize the image that's a cat, that's a cat, that's a cat. And I think they were telling him this each one of these is a cat. And I seem to remember there being some other research where what you and I would might recognize as a cat, two eyes, those little ears, the mouth, they would be recognizing a cat in different ways. So they would pick up other data points that you and I maybe don't consciously even know. <laughs> so the shape of the head, I'd say, oh, but if I saw a misshapen head on a cat, I would notice. And uh, that was very interesting to see how AI, you guys, it's almost like a life form, it seems to me, that you're creating because it just starts to think on its own at some point, right? Yeah, and that's the beauty of it, right? So you, you feel a little bit, as a, I wouldn't say God with a capital G, but, you know, little God, the ability <laughs> right. to, and that was the fascination that drove me to AI. So my initial impetus was I wanted to understand brain. But the best way to understand the brain, turns out, is the one to build it, right? So to build something, and the mechanism, right? And you, you say you were in the auto industry. Studying a car, you might have a glimpse of what the tire is for, what the steering wheel, what all the components, but if you're able to build it, then you have a complete knowledge of what the mechanics are, right? And so that's the, the brain, right? The synthetic approach. So give us the layman's version of what AI is and how it works. And so again, I'm just thinking, we're, we're using AI a lot of places for getting trucks. And I know that's not an application we're going to talk about today, but it probably is an easier application in a lot of ways than uh, what you're talking about. But talk about what is the basics? How does AI work? Yeah. So there are different brands uh, and types of AI. And so AI has been a field that has existed for hundreds of years. But for the sake of simplification, I, I will divide it in two different buckets. There is the traditional good old-fashioned AI, which is called GoFi, with an acronym, which has been around for many, many decades and has spun application like traditional machine vision where the intelligence of the AI is essentially in the head of the designer. And let me explain you, for instance, the concept. So imagine that you need to understand whether this is a plastic bottle. And so a designer of GoFi will say, okay, if I see something cylindrical with the blue cap, uh, with the blue stripes, right, then... that thick, that length. Yes, <laughs> that, that length, that, that's a lot of water, right? And so this approach works in certain conditions and uh, and it's very are, limited it's very limited but it really works if you if you create a very standardized environment and so you find today many traditional machine vision application which has this branch of artificial intelligence deployed in the field as many other systems that have existed so ai has existed for many many decades in very limited form now the other kind of ai which has been rebaptized deep learning, which in reality should be called neural network, which is the field I entered 25 years ago, looks at the problem in a different way. Deep learning sounds really important, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah it is. it's it's a matter of fashion. Last name, 
understand that fashion is important, right? So if this year trend is red, I'm going to be red. And, but the substance is exactly the same. So these are called neural networks. And they take their power from the very simple concept. So as opposed to the experimenter coming up with different measures and different ideas on how this differs from another bottle, all the intelligence of the experimenter or the designer is put in the algorithm that is able to learn by itself how to perceive these bottles or anything that is shown, right? So the whole idea of neural network is how can I design learning mechanisms that are very powerful and then can learn anything that I present to the system to then come up with its own definition of what the bottle is or what a cell phone is or any other object that I present to it. And so the bread and butter of these are two fundamental components, two Lego pieces that are the neurons and the synapses. And so you can imagine these as little processing units, very simple, connected with various connections with other millions or billions of processing units. And at each one of these junctures, each one of these connections, which is called synapse, there is learning. And so over time, when you present images, then these synapses adapt so they can learn this is a bottle versus this is a cell phone. And so that's the fundamental difference. One approach is based on the intelligence of the experimenter to come up with a description of the object. In the other case, is designed to be data-driven, which is I present you images and the system adapts itself to classify this object as cell phone, bottles, etc. So that's the fundamental difference. And so the second approach is finally one battle against the first approach, right? So this historic decades-old battle has been finally won by deep learning or neural networks. Right. So we've been using AI for a long time, but to your point, it was very limited and not particularly asking it to learn. It was just saying, we need you to recognize. We need you to recognize this is a correct part or a bottle or something, and that's it. And now we're saying, I want you to actually learn and be able to classify not just one bottle. I want you to be able to look at hundreds of different bottles and recognize that each one's a bottle, which is it requires some learning. So anyway, hopefully uh, <laughs> I know a little more about AI. Hopefully everybody else does. So before I forget, I didn't even ask, are you related to Versace's, the family, the fashion people? We are cousins. We are cousins. We, we usually say I do neural modeling versus the other kind of modeling. <laughs> well, gone too soon. Well, I know the Versace family carries on. That's that's quite the quite the heritage you guys have there. I was telling Max when we were prepping, I feel like I would just be so much more successful in my life if my name was Max Versace. <laughs> hey, you can always change it. There would be two of us. I don't look the part. I'm a little pale for all that. <laughs> I, I, I love Italian food. I, does that help? <laughs> so, yeah, it does. It does. Anyway, so let's talk a little bit about some applications, about how AI and some, some things you guys are doing. I think you said proof of concept that you're working on and some that are current, and we won't mention names if you don't want to. So talk about an application where AI is transforming the supply chain, and just give us the first one. Yeah, absolutely. So let me, let me pick up where I left the story. So the story arc was from robotics too, right? And so we, we looked around, where are all the robots we can deploy our AI? And we didn't see many, right? And so the closest thing to a robotic system is actually an industrial machine or a factory where you have many of these machines, either robotic or simpler machine that are equipped with cameras or can be very quickly equipped with cameras. And uh, that's not the only part. There was an acute need 
to inject more and more automation, more and more oversight, quality assurance, uh, essentially amplify the work in, in these factories. Also, given that even before coronavirus, the, the, the long-term trend was a decrease in the supply of uh, qualified workers able to or in, interested in working in factory. And so we started to verticalize into that sector also because our technology was particularly proficient in being deployed on very cheap hardware, very inexpensive cameras, uh, directly on the production line without having to require to ping a cloud, which as you can imagine in, in a production line where you might be disconnected from the internet or you have very fast reaction cycle or many parts per minute, you want to be fast, you want to be self-sufficient. And so we started to verticalize a couple of years ago our offering into that sector and we launched a product called Visual Inspection Automation or VIA, which is an Italian word, of course, just to right. keep the, the... Hey, are there Russian words or American words in there too? <laughs> Um, Russian, not yet. Americans, um, yeah, we, we sprinkle some English here and there, but, uh, you know, VIA sounds good. Uh, it's, it, yeah, 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 that sounds good. I like it. Actually, I didn't come up with it. I'm innocent. It was our VP of sales, which is British, so it's not my fault. Yeah, but he's, he's sucking up to the boss. I don't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's very creative. So application range from uh, the intake of uh, raw material in the production cycle all the way to checking whether the product has been manufactured in the right way to the palletization and shipping of the product. So that really you can sprinkle an eye or an artificial eye. Big challenge, and I'll just put my automotive hat on for a second. And anytime you're running a big complex manufacturing facility, there's just tons of suppliers, hundreds, thousands of suppliers. And there's inbound shipments. And, they, and you have to be aware of inbound quantity, <laughs> obviously, but you also have to be aware of inbound quality. So there has to be something to check. And one of the things we talked about when we were prepping, Max, was the idea that, first off, I'm limited myself with my eyes, right? I go look at something and go, yeah, it looks good to me, but I'm not looking at it with a robotic eye. I'm not looking at it with, with a, a trained eye. And also, even if I was, even if you were able to train me and say, you know, Joe, I want you to look for these 25 points. Let's just say it's some sort of metal parts and I'm looking at I'm going to daydream. I'm going to be distracted. I'm not going to always do the job the right way. And also, you've given me a job that I don't think is always worthy of a human because it's boring. It's boring and it makes me daydream. <laughs> so I've always thought when I go to a factory, assembly plants, you see somebody who's expected to do something 60 times an hour, 50 times an hour. It's monotonous. And it'd be really easy for me to lose track and I think it's the same. I'm looking at in part, incoming part quality or incoming part quantity. And you say, Joe, I need you to count and make sure there's 25 of those parts or 250 of those parts. It's easy to kind of get distracted and not do the job. Much better to have your AI do it for me if that's possible. Yeah, absolutely. And you bring up uh, teams that are very dear to me. So I wrote a post a couple of years ago titled, "We are in, What If We Were Already Enslaved by Machines, right? And there is, was all this rhetoric of AI enslaving us. But if you go in a production line, as you mentioned, there are workers that are doing the job for the machine, right? So they're, look, they're operating the machine. They are sacrificing their very important, hefty brain to do tasks that are Right. And also that plays into the, the issue of workforce, right? That's why the people don't want to work in factories anymore. Well, guess why? It's boring, right? They want to have more fulfilling jobs and you don't blame them, right? So the idea is 
not really to substitute the human, no, supplement them. <laughs> to supplement it or to insert artificial eyes where you don't want, you, you can't, or it's too expensive to put a human eye, right? And so take, for instance, you know, one example where we have a proof of concept is food intake, right? So you have a, the food coming in and currently they have nobody looking at this process, which basically means that at the end, when the food is already packaged, there can be contaminants in the food, which basically happens that the consumer finds out and then they get pissed with the producer and then there is an issue of recalls, there is an issue of uh, reputation. And so the idea, since nobody's looking at this process right now, the company that we are contracting with wants to put artificial eyes to spot contaminants before... Right. It's interesting because I did a ton of training for a whole bunch of different companies on the Food Safety Modernization Act, which is relatively new. President Obama signed that in. The FDA, which is responsible for Food Drug Administration, they implemented the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FSMA, or FSMA, whatever you want to call it. And bars has gotten higher. And one of the things we have, I think 20% of our food here in the U.S. comes from out of overseas, comes from another country. And... We need to be able to check the quality of these, the food, and it is not easy. And, you know, again, getting back to it, if you say, Joe, I need you to check whatever the food is, and I'm there giving it a visual inspection, and it's this food's rolling by, and I'm supposed to pick something out, and I got my uh, earbuds in, and I'm in a different world. Why? Because, again, you gave me a boring job, Max, so I need, we need a machine to do that because the machine's never going to say it gets bored. Well, at least, hopefully, not anytime soon. Don't design that in. <laughs> Ours, uh, we turned that off. The boring uh, neurons is off. But you have a definite point, right? So also that's a misconception about uh, both humans and AI, right? So if you're thinking about common idea of AI is that you have human, which is perfect, and then AI, until it gets 100%, I'm not going to deploy it, right? Because you want perfection. Both of those assumptions are completely off, right? And so that's off with self-driving cars, for instance. Well, there are accidents on the road, so we are way from 100%. But also for workers, you know, that I remember speaking with a company that asked us, well, I'm not going to deploy your AI until it gets to 95%. And they asked, well, how precise Assuming are your workers? Assuming they're 100%, right? <laughs> yeah, I asked point blank, is, well... The, the application was to look at scrap metal to find plastic or something like that. And I asked, well, this seems to be a very boring job. How precise are your workers? Well, 60, 70%. And they ask, well, why do you want our AI to be 90%? <laughs> right, right. And, and the nature of your AI is it's not going to get worse as time goes on. It's going to get better. Yeah, that's the other point, right? So the more data you accumulate, the more you can refine and improve the artificial intelligence. And I, as a human, might be just the opposite. After I, I, the first few weeks, I'm going to be very vigilant. I'm going to do a great job. And I realize, you know what? This job sucks. No one else will do it. And uh, I'm going to get high before I come to work because that's a job that requires you to get high first. I shouldn't say that, but it's there's reasons people do it. And the monotony is part of it. So so this, what you originally were calling, this is optical character recognition. So you can use this to check incoming quality of food or parts or, and you also said expiration dates. Again, if you ask me to check expiration dates on stuff, again, depending on how many I have to do, I might daydream. I might not do the job. And by the way, I might be a lot more expensive than a one-time purchase of AI along with its maintenance. Definitely true. So one of the applications we have, this is at the very end of the process, right? So you already have your package and, uh, and you want to read expiration date on the packages to prevent 
incorrect data and extra manual labor. So we developed with one of our partners in Japan, actually I can disclose who they are, is IHI, an AI-based workflow that automatically locates the expiration date on the package, reads the expiration dates, and output a standard format date, then then the company can log into the customer control system. So that's a task that is very important. Be sure that you don't get expired products in your in your supply chain and is automated with AI and can reduce dramatically the cost and the issues that can happen down the road. So that's an application. So you have the applications that are old business for you. Optical character recognition, so it can read barcodes, it can read words, it, it check expiration dates. That's no problem. So, so you could put AI, a very simple camera and check incoming quality. And also I, I kind of brought up to you while we were talking because I'm very interested in damage. Everybody who is in logistics and supply chain is always concerned with damage. If you don't pick up that damage, there's a big advantage to finding it early so you can kind of point it out so there's not a he said, she said with that. It'd be nice if AI could be kind of better gauge whether that product came in damaged or not. Yeah, so that's another implication of uh, putting the AI to work to essentially understand whether a product departs from what sometimes is called the golden standard, right? So, you know, a visual data set, imagine that you have a folder on your computer when you have a thousand pictures of your auto components. So, Joe, pick your favorite auto component. A bracket. A, a bracket. Yeah, so you have, a, you have a, or a bearing or a bracket. So you have a favorite bracket. So you have a hundred pictures of a, a standard bracket that you know it's okay. Right, And then you can train your AI and say, this is the standard. Alert me anytime you see a deviation from this standard. Right, right. so it's assuming it's a metal stamping of some sort, and then it's, hey, this is bent a little too much. Hey, that, that radius is too big, and then it captures it. Or, hey, that looks like it, it's got some nicks on it. Or anything that would me wanting to flag it before I start using it in my, in my production. That's precisely true, yeah. And it's important, that the concept of... Um, Training with just good data is very crucial, right? Because often in the manufacturing sector, you have a 99.9% of good stuff, right? And then you have the occasional bad. And you don't necessarily have enough samples of what can go wrong. You have the occasional broken products. And so you want to be able to catch that. And really, the only way to catch that is to give a fairly large number or hundreds of pictures, let's put it this way, of good product. And then the AI can alert you if there is a deviation from that. And that's the classical way in which we deploy our solutions. Nice. So the first way is, again, this OCR. So I can check, and I use the, I was thinking inbound quality products and stuff, but it could be used a lot of different places. And another one we talked about, was, well, give us another application that you think is interesting. Yeah, we talked about the food processing. We talked also about surface inspection. So we're working with companies that deploy our AI to check the quality of fabric, textile, general, lumber, metal. And so these are particularly interesting applications because they cannot really be tackled with traditional machine vision. And the reason is that the damages, the judging of this tech fabric, judging to be very qualitative, right? Very hard to decode explicitly. If we step back for a second, if you, if you, to the discussion of traditional AI versus new AI. AI system have been around for many years in very well-defined problems, such as playing chess, right? And so in chess, you have a set of rules that are established. These are the rules, and then I can design this logic. If you move here, then I'll do that. If you move there, then I'll do that. And so you can create these decision trees, they're called in artificial intelligence. 
but you cannot create a decision tree on deciding whether a piece of lumber is okay or not. It's more of like a gut judgment. And in this kind of application, deep learning is has no rivals, right? You cannot find any other technology that has this uh, intuitive quality inspection uh, you know, capability. And that also speaks to the human aspect of it, right? So you change shift, another guy comes in, maybe, as you mentioned, he's bored and he got a little high, and all your quality judgment change because of some other guy came in the shift, and instead AI is pretty much consistent. So it's not only insatiable and cannot be tired, it's also consistent. Right. And I think also that I like the idea that there's continuous improvement. And so if you say, well, it's... It's right now we brought it in and it's uh, catching 90%. Well, you again, to your point, you might not have been catching 90% before. So I think it's it's interesting. Uh, the book that I had listened to not so long ago had talked about we play here in the West. We play chess a lot. There's a game I think they play in China a lot called Go, G-O-H. And you've heard that story about how AI beat the Go champions over there? Yeah, so... There is a, a company called DeepMind that has been uh, working in these games and video games for many years. They've been acquired by Google uh, early on, I think in early 2010 or 12. And so the the idea, they use a technique called reinforcement learning, which is essentially playing many, many hundreds or thousands of these games and refining the intelligence of the game over time. And in this case, uh, the surprising, but not that surprising, effect capability of the AI system was to find strategy that the human would find counterintuitive, right? Sacrifice a few pieces in a few moves because the AI system is looking so far ahead in terms of the steps that you would not suspect that that's a healthy move, but it turns out to be a very strategic move 20 moves later, which the human cannot bridge mentally. Right. Well, what I thought was interesting about, they told the story in this book that we were asked the average Chinese person or even the people who were Go experts, they would have said, no way can machine learning or AI beat a Go champion. And I think they play that game almost in a religious way. <laughs> That's my sense of it. I'm not from China. But as we have similar victories with chess? Oh, yeah. Chess has been conquered way before Go. Go is uh, much more complex than chess. So if, if you're talking about in AI jargon, the problem space is much larger, right? And so it was harder to dominate, but it was just a matter of time. And so that's that's exactly what happened. And in general, you can expect that any that, that involves uh, you know either a game or a visual recognition of some sort, eventually AI will have superhuman capability. And the reason is very simple. You can train somebody to do one thing very, very well, and just that. What about football bets? I don't see why not. I mean, the trick about humans is that we are able to do so many things in one single brain. And so that's really the bar that you set to say, okay, we, we have reached human-level AI. But if you're looking at one particular very vertical competence, we already have superhuman capabilities in many of these aspects. So for instance, road sign reading, AI can already beat humans, chess, go, and, and you name it. The reason I brought that up is when you have that kind of learning that's going on, and we know that if they can beat the Go champions, they can beat the chess champions, it's just a matter of time before they're going to be able to pick out plastic out of your scrap metal bin better than any human. It's uh, That's just where we're heading. So we talked about this OCR. You talked about noticing imperfections or discrepancies in fabric. 
Oh, but that would be cool. So you get to call like the fabric companies and say, this is Mr. Versace. Can I speak to who's in charge? <laughs> so we actually did go to their factory some time ago, but that was a couple of years ago. It was too difficult to be done. The, actually, the fabric is, is so hard that you have to touch the fabric to understand if there is a, an issue. So at that point, we couldn't do it. But there are many other applications where you can. Right. So the, but just Versace was really picky about that particular application. <laughs> well, you knew they would be. So what's another application that you see out there that's um, a good one? Well, one is electronic components, printed board circuit and so forth. So in this case, you're looking at a chip and you want to be sure that the soldering is done right, that there is not a missing transistor or a component. And so automatic inspection machine exists for this sort of a product already. But our technology is particularly good and inexpensive to be put to work in the low volume runs, highly changing runs, where you have to manufacture different parts every day. And so you can switch our model very quickly and inexpensively because learning can happen with just a few hundreds of images. So that's one application. Food packaging is another one. So we we work with food companies, being sure that in prepackaged food, you have all the right components in it, right? That you're not missing the potatoes and and the meat and so forth. We're working with pharmaceutical as well. In this case, to screen uh, compounds, molecular compounds, metal surfaces inspection. We talked about food quality, consistency. Auto components is another area where we are looking at ball bearing, for instance, or tires. So really, the application are very broad because the technology can be trained very quickly on anything, right? You know, what's one thing that we talked about when we were prepping, and I think this would probably be a very easy application for you guys, is this, you know, when we're loading trucks, sometimes we say we know what is supposed to go on that truck. And then we know what actually got on that truck sometimes is not what was supposed to. If you had some sort of reader that said, hey, we can read what went onto that truck and we're short a pallet or we're short a box. Good to know before I ship because we're all being managed on on time and in full. If you should deliver one pallet short, that you're being penalized in a lot of cases. So there is money that's being spent for that error. So it might make sense to have some... uh, investment in AI. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the AI is all about reducing waste and catching things before it's too late, right? So as we said, can be sprinkled from the raw material intake to the packaging, to the production, all the way to the palletization and shipping. And so you're talking about the last part, of course, but obviously, you know, the, you'll see more and more uh, AI power camera across the, product, the, the the life cycle stages. Right. Well, it makes sense. And again, I think we talked about this when we are prepping, and this seems to come up a lot on my podcast. There is a worker shortage, and there's not just a worker shortage in factories. There's also in fulfillment centers. There's on the we have a problem with dock workers. We have a problem with truck drivers consistently, and we need to make everybody who's working in these jobs knowledge workers. We need to be able to use their brains and let them be part of the supply chain, not just a strong back. And I think this is the step. Give them really cool tools because it's one thing if somebody said, "Hey, do you, your son or daughter taking a summer job where they're using." AI-powered tools rather than, yeah, you got a strong back, kid, so lift these boxes. We've got to make these better jobs. And again, put put the human to work on what the human can do and uh, put the robots and the AI to work on the stuff that we don't need humans on. Absolutely. I mean, it's a case in point. I mean, people today have options, right? They can go drive an Uber or find some other kind of job that gives them more freedom. And uh, the appeal has to be, okay, you're coming to work in a high-tech environment where there is AI, robotics, you're going to be managing the system, you're going to be learning a skill, a technology, and you're going to be getting the same sort of a consumer level technology that you use at home, right? So you don't want to give a, an antiquated system, you know. 
we're all spoiled by the consumer experiences that we have. You know, you go on Amazon, you go on Facebook or Twitter or whatever we're using, and then the expectation is pretty high when you get to the office. And when when it when they send you to the old system, you're like, this is old. I don't want to play. So, Max, please summarize this for me. Give Talk about what we can do with AI and how it's transforming the supply chain. And give us some of those examples again, and then we'll talk a little bit about Nerala. Yeah, I mean, our technology gives the ability to build deploy and refine an artificial eye in uh, all stages of the life cycle, from the intake of raw material to packaging production, palletization and shipping across many different verticals, from electronic components, consumer goods packaging, pharma, textile, metal surfaces, food processing, auto components, and so forth. So we make it really easy for the average operator to build deploy this artificial intelligence without having any knowledge of what AI does and, uh, you know, just requiring the typical skill set of operating a simple program like a Photoshop or... You don't need a scientist or a PhD to uh, help you work that. Yeah. All you need to do is to collect images from a camera, say this is good, and then deploy the system and uh, put it to work in your factory, interface it with your PLC, programmable logic, and so forth, and so to insert it in, in, in your production line. So... We strive to make that something that is really easy, inexpensive, and doesn't require lots of capital investment. So you can just do it and and upgrade your factory. How about the implementation? Is there like a, well, first off, when you say it's not too too expensive, it's not too expensive, but in terms of implementing, is it at weeks or months or how long does that take? So AI can be trained in minutes. But obviously, you need to integrate your system within your production line. We have about 30 partners in the world right now, which are mostly system integrators, uh, you know, in US, Europe, Asia, and Africa, and uh, and so forth, that help us go to the customer. Often, the customer has uh, a good chunk of the solution already in place, but sometimes they need some additional lighting, they need some actuator to take away the part if it's defective. So our partner basically take our solution, integrate it into a final solution for the customer, and then the customer basically pays for the final solution, which has our technology as the centerpiece. Very nice, very nice. So tell us a little bit what's going on over at Neurala. You guys speaking, or by the way, you're going to any live conferences in the coming months? <laughs> oh, we do. I, I'm actually blocking uh, on the conference, but what's in my mind is that today we have announced the opening of our European office. So we're launching... Neurala Europe. Where's that at? Actually, where I was born. It's going to be in Trieste. So there are some uh, local investors that have decided to invest in, uh, in so our So that's current. in the south, though, of uh, Italy. In the north. In the I, north. Thought you were, I thought you said you were born in the south and moved to the north. My ori- origins were from the south, but I was born in the north. And so this is, a, you said, about 100 miles from Venice? 100 miles from Venice. So it's a, it's a city called Trieste. And we have already investors and customers in Italy. Italy, you might think of Italy as a good place to go and have a vacation and have good food, but it's actually a very, very strong industrial and automation player. Italy doesn't have a ton of manufacturers, I would say, anymore, but they manufacture the machine that the manufacturers use. And of course, they manufacture it. They made in Italy stuff. I think what's interesting to me is um, I think what we all tend to do, and I don't think it's just Americans doing it, I think the whole world does it, is we kind of have a vision of the way countries are. And like when I think of like Ireland, like you're going to go back there and there's going to be a whole bunch of people saying top of the morning and wearing green and <laughs> orange. And then you get there and you go, oh no, <laughs> what was I thinking? And especially like when you think of Italy, like the food and, you know, it's this caricature that we have. And then when you visit, you go, oh, wow. 
<laughs> surprise, surprise. They, they they don't just stop their progress a hundred years ago. <laughs> no, actually, it's it's. Uh, I would say it's almost the opposite, right? So Italy has been uh, always very strong in artisans, right? They have morphed with the industrial revolution to automate those artisan skills in machines, right? So Italy is very strong in for instance, packaging machines or in general machines that are then sold to other companies to build products. And so many of our customers and investors are now in Italy. And so we're going to look at that as a sort of the beachhead for Europe. But, you know, we're already selling our solution in North Europe as well. And of course, you know, there are countries that are very strong, like Germany and France and so forth. So we're looking at that market now as a direct expansion. So what else is going on at Nerala? Who is your main customers? Who do you serve? So we, we serve essentially three broad categories. The first are OEMs. Original equipment manufacturers. Right. So we have publicly announced partnership with FLIR, which is one of the world's leader manufacturer of cameras. EMA, which is a, an Italian industrial manufacturing machine. Uh, they build packaging machine for food, beverages, tobacco, and so forth. We have a partnership with IHI, which is a large conglomerate in Japan, where we work on with a couple of divisions, in particular also the logistic division. And we a few others that we are working on right now, and some of them will be announced in June. And so I would say this is at the bottom of the manufacturing ecosystem where we are embedded at the source in, say, in the FLIR cameras that then they're sold to the end customers. In the middle, we have the system integrators, and it's really one of our main go-to-market is to partner with these system integrators that anyway are very strong relationship with manufacturers. And then we work with manufacturers. With a few, we work directly, in particular, the one that understand and have a good handle on integrating the, the solution themselves. And with others, we partners to help uh, integrate the solution. But these are the three main players in the ecosystem. Very nice. Very nice. Well, what I'll do, Max, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile so people can reach out and talk to you there. By the way, your full name isn't Max. It's what is it? Massimiliano. Okay. That's what I was going to say, but I can't. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, Max, we'll have to defeat Max. So I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and I'll put a link to your company, Nerala, and any other links that uh, you guys give me. I'll put those links in the show notes. And uh, this is a fantastic things you're doing. And I think this is really is transforming the supply chain again from really from. Uh, raw materials to shipping. I mean, through logistics, it's it's fantastic. Thank you, Joe. It was a pleasure. And hopefully you can come and visit us in our subsidiary in Europe. Yeah, I would love that. I would love that. I even bought, my relatives are from Boston. That's where my, it's not just Italian people in Boston. There's, a, there's Irish there people there Irish, too. Yeah. I, used to live, I used to live in South Boston, so I know that. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I'm in my 50s. We all grew up with, I think it was a, somebody in Boston where there was a, like an Italian, maybe it was Philadelphia, some mother's, calling Anthony to come home to eat. And he's running through the Italian part of town. And I was like, oh, so we all have that vision. I don't know if that was Boston or Philadelphia, somewhere out east. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. No, that, that sounds great. That sounds the right vision. Yes, exactly. So thank you very much, Max. I really do appreciate you educating us on this topic. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversations with experts in the logistics field. If you're an expert and would like to be featured on the Logistics of Logistics podcast, please email Joe Lynch at joe at the logisticsoflogistics.com. 